and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Uh... This is the second of our Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episodes. And if you haven't listened to our show before, don't worry. This is a great starting point. And if you enjoy this episode, I highly recommend checking out our 10-part Get Me Another Star Wars series. This week, we're going to look at two fantasy films that came from the imagination of Muppet creator Jim Henson. The first of these, released in theaters in December of 1982, is an epic adventure set on a distant world entirely realized through puppetry and animatronic creatures. This is the Dark Crystal. In a place outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal was directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, written by David O'Dell from a story by Jim Henson, and produced by Jim Henson and Gary Kurtz, who also produced Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. Rob, I don't know about you, but growing up, the creations of Jim Henson were absolutely integral to my life. Like, beginning with Sesame Street and then The Muppet Show, they are so entwined with my childhood that I cannot imagine growing up without them. Yeah, I feel the same way. And The Dark Crystal is very specific in what it does. Because this movie made money, but let's just say that, uh, you know, it wasn't a monster smash hit, which is why you didn't get any sequels at the time. But for me, The Dark Crystal is the velvet underground of 80s children movies. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Not every kid saw it in the theater, but every kid who did made art. And this movie is is inspiring to those that connected with it, I think, in that way. Yeah, I went to see Dark Crystal in the movie theater, and it had an impact. It was fascinating and frightening, and it is just the kind of cinematic experience that will, if you, if you have it at the right time, it will stay with you forever. Yeah, my wife uh, actually was watching it with me when I sat down, and she I, I swear it was about once every 10 minutes you would get a shot, and she would say, that's etched in my brain forever. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, you know, was in, at the end when you have the, the three uh, suns lining up oh. toward the end, and you're seeing it through the, uh, the cutout in the ceiling, uh, that was one of those. But there, there are many, many. Uh, oh, the mystics on the horizon in silhouette oh, as yeah. they're just going across Absolutely. frame was another one. I mean, there's so uh, anyway for a children's movie, this thing is chock full of just some beautiful, beautiful images. Um, not even, yeah. and that's not even getting into, uh, you know, the amazing animatronics and puppetry, etc. This is, yeah, I'm the just talking the craftsmanship involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, my wife, who does not watch every movie for the show with me, uh, and and but made a point of watching both of this week's movies uh, because you know, I think she's seen them before and she she loves them. Um, the conceptual art for the Dark Crystal was created by Brian Froud, who also did the art for our second film today, Labyrinth. Uh, the music was composed by Trevor Jones, who previously wrote the score for a movie we talked about on our last bonus episode, Excalibur. 
Uh, and it was the last film of legendary British cinematographer Oswald Morris, who did Look Back at Anger, The Guns of Navarone, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold, Oliver, Scrooge, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Man Who Would Be King, and The Wits. And this was his final film, and it is incredible. Um, it features the vocal performances of Stephen Garlick as Jen, Lisa Maxwell as Kira, Bailey Whitlaw as Agra, who you will remember as Damien Thorne's ill-fated nanny from The Omen, and Barry Denon as the Skeksis Chamberlain with the distinctive whimper. Mm. Uh, Barry Denon, I want to mention, was the original Pontius Pilot in the original concept album, Broadway production, and film of Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, the Dark Crystal tells the story of Jen, a young Gelfling on the planet Thra, who is tasked by his dying master, a, a member of a race called the Mystics, with finding a shard from, a, from the powerful Dark Crystal which had been broken a thousand years earlier, and by healing the crystal, overthrow the cruel and devious Skeksis who rule the world. Uh, Jim Henson conceived of the Dark Crystal as early as 1975, taking inspiration from illustrations from some of the, the poetry of Lewis Carroll. And a conceptual predecessor, this is funny, there was a conceptual predecessor in Henson's own series, The Land of Gorch, which was a recurring sketch, during, of all places, on Saturday Night Live during its first season, which had Muppet-type creatures in a faraway land behaving badly and was sort of the impetus for the, the Skeksis. Um, he later crafted a story called The Crystal, which laid out the basic plot and world. He wanted to create something in the vein of Grimm's fairy tales, complete with the darker aspects of those stories, as it was Henson's belief that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. And I could tell you from my own experience, I might have—I saw this in the movie theater, I might have been a little too young for it, and it did scare me, but in the best way possible. Yes, um, there's definitely... What's interesting is that to hear you say that with Henson thinking that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid, uh, I, you can totally see that as, as in ways an educator, right? That you are teaching them to deal with adversity. Uh, in this film definitely, <laughs> you would say, uh, holds that belief. The next film also does. But sticking yes. with the Dark Crystal, I often don't do this. But for some reason, this time I did. I was looking at just kind of some of the early, the reception at the time for this film. And hmm. without getting into details, uh, unsurprisingly, there was a whole swath of critics whose chief complaint about the movie essentially was, this isn't the Muppets. This is darker. <laughs> and, well, you know, yeah. and I could totally imagine that, uh, you know, if you're using that Henson name at the time, uh, that that would be the case. I just... It, what's interesting to me is that as far as being too dark, you know, there's, there's some, some heavy things in this movie. Uh, you know, people die in this movie, but sure. uh, it's certainly not nearly as hard as stuff that kids would watch perhaps today. Although perhaps a little more unsettling to give children the message that the good mystics and the bad Skeksis are neither good nor bad. They are halves of the same coin, which I think is the We're gonna get real, into that I think that's the real troubling aspect that a lot of people have with this movie. Uh, anyway. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I find so amazing is, is beyond the craftsmanship at work 
the obvious craftsmanship in terms of the puppetry to realize it's it's the sense of world building i mean this movie runs just over 90 minutes and in that time we're introduced to numerous characters several different races a whole mythology of this world and it's incredibly efficient and totally successful um you know like to think about a couple of years earlier you know empire strikes back had integrated yoda into an otherwise actor-populated world. The Dark Crystal takes that to the next level. We're not going to have any human beings on screen at all. Yeah, and and the way, the act one of this movie where they are introducing, there's there's quite a lot, right? You're, you have to open yeah. with voiceover narration that's letting you, kind of telling you some things about the world. You're meeting a lot of, you're le- meeting the Skeksis, you're meeting the Mystics, you're meeting Jen, and it's setting up, you know, that both the leader of the mystics and the emperor of the Skeksis are both dying. So They're both dying. Much like the original Star Wars, you're getting a lot of pieces on the chessboard early, but you're it's giving you enough time with each before it switches over so that you can get a handle on it. And then you start kind of going back and forth. And it it really reminded me of Star Wars in that um, unlike a, a typical children's film, you spend a lot of time with the Skeksis, the supposed bad yeah. guys, uh, much like you spend a lot of time with the Empire and Darth Vader. Uh, it, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. once they jet, jettison the 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 you know the the pod in in Star Wars with with three PO and R two aboard, you spend a fair amount of time with Darth Vader and the other Imperials on the cruiser and talking to uh, to Princess Leia and that kind of thing. You know, it's you mentioned the similarities to Star Wars, and and I think that opening monologue of the Dark Crystal, which tells us that it is another world and another time, and it feels not that different <laughs> from you know a long time ago in a galaxy far away, and they both draw. From you know Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces, uh, and and the concept of the monomyth, the hero's journey, um, which Joseph Campbell wrote about thusly: a hero ventures forth from the world of the common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and decisive a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. And it is very easy to draw a line between Luke Skywalker's journey in Star Wars and Jen's journey in the Dark Crystal, both kind of drawing from this basic model. For sure. The thing to me that separates the Dark Crystal a bit from that and, you know, almost makes it uh, more in the mini Lord of the Rings type territory is that while Mm -hmm. Jen's journey is incredibly powerful and it drives the story, it is, in my opinion, equal in stature and importance to Kara's journey that they really yes. are a partnership uh, much more than Luke and, say, Han Leia are necessarily in Star Wars. Perhaps more Han, yes. but it, it's so clearly Luke is the special one. He is the one with the connection to the Force. And here, uh, one could argue that Kira actually is much more connected to the uh you know mystical supernatural than jen is yeah um you know and and she's got wings because she's a girl that's yeah of course he doesn't have wings he's a boy it's such a great it's such a great moment jen is faced with the task of finding a shard and restoring the crystal of truth which and in doing so he comes into conflict with the skexies a cruel race of creatures who rule thought while jen believes himself to be the last gelfling he is in fact not because there is also a female 
uh, Gelfling, uh, Kira, who you mentioned. Um, he also meets, I, I want to point out, the Augra, the astronomer and the wise mm-hmm. one, who kind of fills a Yoda-like role. Um, there's actually two Yoda figures in this movie, because really the first is Jen's mystic master, who raised him and taught him about the world. And he dies fairly early in the film, uh, setting, you know, setting Jen on the task of restoring the crystal. And, and it's funny, he fades away in a manner, like his death scene early in the film is very reminiscent of Yoda in Return of the Jedi, a movie that would come out six months later. And was clearly in production at the same time. Um, it's interesting contrasting the two death scenes because at the same time that that the Mystic Master is dying, the Skeksis Emperor is also dying and literally crumbling into dusk. Another one of the, the, the some of those early Skeksis scenes are so like they are genuinely unsettling. They're unsettling to me now, and I'm in my forties. Uh, they were uh, as sure as hell unsettling when I was six years old and saw this in the movie theater. And I love the contrast, and it seems it seems simple. It seems like an obvious thing to do, uh, but I don't know that I've seen it a ton. Where you have simultaneous passing of leaders, right? Leaders dying, yeah. A, a vacuum of power at the top, and getting to see what that means to the mystics and how they treat it, and what that means to the Skeksis and how they treat it. Uh, the mystics are all kind of. Uh, you know, there's a lot of chanting and meditating on yeah. what's going to happen and what the next best course of action is. But everyone's kind of letting the the Mystic Master do what he needs to uh, and talk with Jen and then passing on. The Skeksis Emperor is a much different thing. Immediately there is a struggle for power to who will succeed the Emperor. And I'm going to say it, trial by stone! Yes. Trial by stone! Um... Yeah, that that clear link between the Skeksis and the Mystics, and and is 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 apparent from the beginning of the film, and only grows more apparent as the film goes on. Um, and this is where I want to talk about some of the philosophical underpinnings of this movie. Um, the Dark Crystal was heavily influenced by what is known as the Seth material, which were a series of writings by author Jane Roberts, who, according to her, channeled a spirit by the name of Seth who provided information on the nature of existence, reality, and the self. And whether or not Roberts was actually channeling a spirit or not, who can say? But her writings provided a cornerstone to what is now referred to as New Age philosophy, which was particularly popular during the 1970s when this film was first conceived. Uh, Henson apparently gave copies of the Seth material to both screenwriter David O'Dell and designer Brian Frown. One of the most significant aspects of this writing that is present in The Dark Crystal is the idea of the duality of good and evil actually being parts of a greater whole. Now, here's where we get into spoiler territory. At the climax of the film, the Skeksis and the Mystics are revealed to be parts of another race, the Urskeks, who, when the crystal was cracked a thousand years earlier, were split into the Skeksis and the Mystics. And we see this duality from the very beginning, um, you know, with, with when the, the Emperor and the Mystic Master die at the same time. Uh, later on, when one of the Skeksis is thrown down the fiery shaft over which the Dark Crystal hangs, one of the Mystics vanishes in a puff of flame. And this idea that good and evil are not separate, but parts of the whole, is the key to Robert's philosophy. Uh, a, a, a quote from, uh, from Seth Speaks, The Eternal Validity of the Soul. 
Now, it has often been said that there is a God, so there must be a devil. Or if there is good, that there must be evil. This is like saying that because an apple has a top, it must also have a bottom, but without any understanding of the fact that both are portions of the apple. Uh, and I just think, well, I'm going to say it, and, th and this may be, I'm going to say something that might be controversial, Rob. Get ready. The comments, are, I think, are going to blow up. I think the Dark Crystal in its 93 minutes makes a more cohesive statement about the balance of good and evil, the light side and the dark side, than Star Wars has ever been able to achieve. There's a lot of talk in the prequels about the balance of the Force, but I never understood it in that context because it appears that, to, to reference the, the, the way they talk about it in Phantom Menace and, and the other prequels, they refer to the light side defeating the dark side, the Jedi destroying the Sith. And I honestly never understood how that constituted balance. The Dark Crystal illustrates that concept far more effectively with the ultimate message that both good and evil are aspects of the greater whole. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that I don't know that Star Wars is ever putting a lot of emphasis or trying to make real statements about the true nature of, of good and bad or good and evil, depending upon how one wants to talk. I mean, there there's certainly talk about the force and what it means, but it always feels um, a little bit broader, just as like a, uh, a good way to go right be it, it always sure. feels like be be a good person is kind of the the light side of the force whereas this you're right it's delving into uh and trying to go in in a space that's much much different and what i find truly interesting to me is this was made by a man who knew that the target audience was young children and that this is yeah. this is an, a very advanced philosophical concept uh that a lot of adults especially in the west would not really cotton to so to speak um you know i i will say that a lot of this uh the non-duality of of good and and bad are uh in varying degrees themes of a lot of eastern religion uh sure you'll even find examples of it in christianity i you know because let he among us who is without sin cast the first stone uh is to me an acknowledgement uh at least in part that you even a good person is probably not a hundred percent separated from sure. uh from good and evil but in any event it it's just th to, to be asking children to get on board with this and to be able to get them to get on board with it frankly because i was a kid when i saw this i wasn't thinking yeah. consciously about the material but you know it's um it, it's it's an interesting thing to see at the end and I think appropriate for children to have an ending where you aren't excited to kill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds no, weird to say, no, but it, it, no, it, it, it's, I think it's, I think it's a great point. And, and I'll tell you that the dark crystal reminds me of something else. I, the, 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 the way it talks about the duality of good and evil and, and that they are both a, a part of us. It reminds me of an episode of the original star Trek entitled The Enemy Within. In that episode, a transporter accident splits Captain Kirk into two beings, one good and one evil. Evil Kirk is brutal and selfish, while the good Kirk is good and caring. But in the end, the solution to the problem is not to kill the bad guy. You know, it's that 
the good Kirk, they, they basically, they have to put them both back together in the transporter because they aren't able to live without one another for very long. And it, I always thought it was interesting that the good Kirk, despite being his, you know, despite having a very benevolent nature, was ultimately unable to command the Enterprise because he needed some of those qualities that existed in the, the, the evil half of himself, obviously controlled and, and, and balanced, but he needed some of those qualities to be able to actually command the ship. And, and in the end, it's, I, I think that episode and Dark Crystal would make a fantastic double feature because I think they're really dealing with the same, the same uh, you know, themes and the same philosophical concepts, and their ending is very similar. And yes, by the way, for any that that is the episode of Star Trek with the one-horned dog. Uh, I just have to mention that. But um, yeah, I think it's it's so interesting. I, I I also watched as preparing for this podcast. I watched some of the behind-the-scenes material on the Blu-ray, which I highly recommend. There's an interesting moment in a documentary that's on the disc called "The World of the Dark Crystal." where Henson is talking about uh, performing one of the Skeksis, the Ritual Master. And he describes the Ritual Master as uh, pompous and arrogant. And then he says how a part of him was that way. And, and it made him able, you know, he was able to tap into that in, in, in bringing the character to life. And I just thought it took, what an extraordinary amount of self-awareness to be able to understand that you have those negative traits, but that they are important. And that, that if you don't let them go out of control, if you don't let them rule your life, they can, they can bring things to the table. And I just thought that was what a fundamentally great understanding um, of how people actually are. Yeah. Henson doing uh, what nowadays might be called shadow work. Um, And what is I've always been fascinated by this because uh, human behavior is just fascinating in people, right? And yes, if you look at most most things that get classified as a mental illness, let's say, when you mm-hmm. look at them at the core, it's not the behavior or the tendency. It is the amplitude, okay? So I'll just take, uh, you know, look, Human beings like to clean and keep a clean home. This is a good survival sure. skill. It is innate. But if that gets taken to a a large extreme where perhaps you are, you know, overwashing your hands and it's hurting your skin or right. you're so afraid of germs that it's impacting the way that you live your life, um, that a, a very good and normal maybe not normal is the right word, but a, a good and, and very prevalent human behavior. Uh, you just, sure. you just upset that balance a little bit. And I think that's what you're talking about. Um, and the movie's talking about with, uh, those tendencies of the Skeksis, right? There, there is a time yeah. for righteous anger and there is a time for strong action, but it must be tempered. You can't let it run wild because if you go too far in that direction, it, it, you know, there it is no longer righteous. It is just anger. It, it and then that begets just violence and power grabbing and all of this. And what for me is that while this often explains, you know, you could say, oh, this is very much an explanation of external human behavior, right? This is this is strife and conflict and wars. Uh, right. It is also a metaphor for the battle that goes on inside each of us, right? 
there there is a war between the Skeksis and the Mystics inside of our minds, inside of our hearts, uh, and frankly, we're we're probably hurting ourselves and battling ourselves way more than we ever are battling anyone who is quote unquote exterior to us. Absolutely, absolutely, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I mean, this movie is just it's this. Well, to, to your point, one of the one of the traits of the Skeksis that's very visually apparent is their gluttony like there's this big banquet the Skeksis have where they're eating i mean eating to excess and that sort of thing. and it's very you know it's it's uh it's a little nasty because it's uh but it, it's interesting uh you know uh, the character of kira grew up with these uh the, these these this race called the podlings who are these little potato looking guys um who who the Skeksis capture and use as slaves um there's a scene that is a, a banquet and celebration scene with uh, with Jen and Kira and the Podlings, which it's it's not that you can't that you can't do these things. You, not that you can't you know have a banquet and celebrate you know you know what's going. On. It's it's the excess, it's the imbalance of the Skeksis, and and I just think yeah yeah it says it says so much. It's um this movie. I, this movie's 93 minutes and it packs a ton into it. And it's, I don't know. There's just, there's so much great stuff. Um, but it never feels you know, rushed. I, I love, there's so many. Never feels rushed, you know? At- no, it never feels rushed. It, it And yet it never feels rushed. And it also never drags. It, it is, it, it has, it has got a, just a perfect pace to it. And it, it's, uh, it's incredible. Like one of the things I loved, they have that, um, where, where uh, essentially Jen and Kira kind of mind meld and you see their upbringings at the same time and they call it dream fasting. And it's this great way of doing exposition between the two. And it's so, it's so terrific. I, uh, I marked that uh, down as well. Uh, not only is it just visually and, and, you know, orally uh, just fantastic, just from the artistic standpoint. I mean, this thing could have been in David Lynch's Dune, frankly, this sequence. Yeah. Oh yeah. But um what I love the most about it is that while it is technically exposition, it is not, you're not getting the full story. You're not being sat down by characters and saying, I'm going to run you through X, Y, Z. That's not what it is. You're getting more of the dream logic feeling of their backstory. And that's all you need. You need that emotional connection. I don't know exactly what happened when uh, Kira was under attack and lost her family. I don't know exactly what happened and what precipitated the same thing happening with uh, Jen. And uh, it doesn't matter because I got what I needed. Right. Um, I want to talk a bit about Agra, who is the, the, the one of the two Yoda type figures uh, who is an astronomer. The, the set for that, mm-hmm. that uh, for her astronomy tower is one of the most amazing in any film. It is just it's this massive three D model of the heavens where everything is moving uh, because they're preparing. She is on the watch for for the next great conjunction. Um, which you know when when asked what that is, she's got that line: "It's the end of the world or the beginning of it." It's a time of change, um, and just Augur is so great that that you know she's. She's one of those characters where it's like it, it, there's she's kind of ornery, like she's she's difficult, um, but at the same time she is uh, she's so she's so fascinating and uh, 
you know, she, I'm glad she sticks through the movie. Um, her introduction, the her introduction is one of my oh, it's favorites. So great. Where Jen has been sent to find her uh, from yeah. the you know the mystic before he passed on, and he knows that he's going to try and get the shard. And she essentially uses her her magic to get Jen trapped up in the trees, uh, who have uh, yeah. who've uh, you know are holding him. And she asks what he wants, and it comes out that Jen is there seeking her. She's skeptical at first, but then he says uh, he wants a shard, and just this great turn where she goes, "Oh, that's all," and then she's releasing, yeah. and then she invites him inside, uh, which leads to one of the great uh, little bits as well, uh, where. She dumps out a bag of shards. The box of shards, oh, yeah. yeah. And just, uh, he says, which one is it? And she says, I don't know. Uh, and then that leads don't to... Don't know. That leads to Jin having to play and get the resonance to see which which shard is the correct one. Um, which is a Yeah, he narrows it down to three, yeah. and then he plays, you know, he, he, he in a, a sense uses the force. Oh, by the way, I, I always think that Jin... And I, I don't know if you're... Uh, Jen looks a little bit like a uh, popular 70s, 80s magician Doug Henning. Oh, I, I could see that. I also, uh, to me, it's a little bit Link from uh, Legend of Zelda. Oh, sure. Uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, very Gelfling-esque. Uh, but uh... <laughs> uh, the other character I want to mention is uh, of the Skeksis, the Chamberlain. Uh, that he is so great because he's at, at, early on he's the, basically the other person contesting to be the new emperor and he loses the contest of the trial by stone and uh, and and then gets cast out and uh, the scene where he is basically like stripped of his robes and stuff talk about another one that that freaked me out as a kid man that like that that scene freaked me out. And uh, and he's cast down. He he goes, you know, basically tries to find Jen because he wants to bring the Gelfling back, and hopefully that will resecure his position among the Skeksis. But he's this, he's got this whimper, which is so distinctive. And as my wife pointed out, it's clearly not friendly, but it's also not overtly scary. It 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 sort of walks this line, and and I thought that was just. Like I thought, such a, a just an interesting character, um, you know, and and you know, there's times where he seems like he might aid uh, Kira and Jen, and there's times where he's clearly working against them. Um, yeah, God, this movie has got so much in its 93 minutes. Yeah, and and it's not one thing that I love about that performance in the the vocal performance is that look, the Chamberlain kind of has is. Uh, more of a schemer anyway. And the voice reflects that yeah. versus the, the Skeksis who becomes emperor, right? Is much more of a, yeah, he's more of a, you know, rah. yeah, exactly. But when Chamberlain talks to Jen and Kara throughout, when he's trying to convince them that he is good and he just wants to, if he brings them to the castle, they can show that they can be friends, which is a hundred percent. We Skeksis friends. We yeah. want to be friends. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And there, there is a, difference in the voice and the vocal tone as he's trying to sound uh you know higher up less threatening even than he normally does uh almost that kind of simpering like kowtowing um all yeah. of which is just you know and look it's it is a it is a kids movie so it's it's not subtle but it's not it's not crazy over the top and it still feels real oddly enough um 
and I think mo- you know all a lot of the performances in this movie with the the vocal performers are uh, fantastic for me. Yeah, no, it, it, this this movie honestly, this movie is just a masterpiece from top to bottom. I mean, it, it is really really something. Um, I also want to mention that the planet on which the Dark Crystal is set is called Thra. Uh, this is not actually mentioned in the movie, but in a lot of the ancillary materials, including the novelization and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's a shortened form of Mithra, which is what Henson called the world in his original treatment. Mithra in Indo-Iranian mythology is a god of light and the sun, and he sacrifices the cosmic bull whose blood fertilizes all vegetation. Now, that's significant because at the end of the film, as the prophecy says, what was sundered and undone shall be made whole, the two made one. And Jen heals the crystal, and we see the dark and decrepit castle of the Skeksis fall away, revealing this brilliantly shining structure of light. And the land around the castle goes from being a barren wasteland to a lush and green world. And I want to make a comparison here to a film we covered in our last bonus episode, John Borman's Excalibur. In that film, once Arthur has drank from the Holy Grail, his wound is healed and the land is restored. Because the land and the king are one, just as the crystal and the planet are one, and the Skeksis and the mystics are one. It's just, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. Oh, I also want to mention... One last observation. When the castle collapses on itself, allowing the light to pour in and the crystal and structure to be revealed underneath, it reminds me of actually the end of the Muppet movie when the studio roof collapses, allowing the rainbow to shine down on all the Muppets. This is a common image with Henson and his work. Yeah, it's a it's an extraordinary movie. It, 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 is, it is my sincere belief that Dark Crystal is Jim Henson's greatest work. And I think one of the greatest fantasy films of all time um and i also think it's nearly impossible to discuss the dark crystal without talking about the other 80s fantasy film directed by jim henson 1986's labyrinth tristar pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents jim henson creator of the muppets and dark crystal George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. And one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. (laughs) Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. The world of Labyrinth. Let me start by saying that we fully recognize that Labyrinth is probably the least Star Wars-esque film that we've covered on this series so far. 
While it is, it is also fantasy and it is also a quest story, it is more in the vein of Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. That said, we just felt that the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth are too perfect of a pair to not talk about together. Uh, the D- Labyrinth started as a collaboration between Jim Henson and Brian Froud, who following their work on The Dark Crystal. The first image that Froud created for the film was that of a baby surrounded by goblins. And the story grew from there. It was specifically intended to be a lighter picture than The Dark Crystal. Uh, the film was written by Monty Python alum Terry Jones and produced by Star Wars creator George Lucas. And it stars, of course, David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin King and Jennifer Connelly as Sarah. It features songs by David Bowie, a score by Trevor Jones, who who scored The Dark Crystal, and it tells the story of Sarah, a young girl who, in the moment of selfishness, wishes for Jareth the Goblin King to take her baby brother away. And despite Jareth's warnings, she undertakes a journey to recover her brother from the Goblin King's castle at the heart of a vast labyrinth filled with strange creatures and untold dangers. Rob, I love this movie. Maybe just not quite as much as The Dark Crystal, but but really close. Like, what what a also what a great movie. Oh, for certain, super entertaining. Um, there there is uh obviously a lot of big differences. One of them, which I actually appreciated, uh, not in relation to The Dark Crystal necessarily, but in relation to children's films now. Uh, mm-hmm. what I really appreciated is that it is just kind of a classic fantasy story. Now you yes. start at the beginning where you get the, you know, the classic character deficiency with, uh, you know, for Sarah, because she is just very against her family and in her own world and doesn't want to, doesn't want the responsibility of looking after her, her younger baby brother. Uh, and then the baby brother is kidnapped by the goblins after she makes the wish, not thinking that it would really happen. So you've got that set up, right? And there's emotional stuff with her and the parents not getting along, especially her and her mother. Uh, stepmother, the stepmother. Yes, the, the evil stepmother, who's not evil, but she's treating her. Who's own. not evil. Yeah. And, but what I appreciate is that in the modern era, you would be taking the, the trauma of either losing the mother or the divorce. You would be speaking it it would be text, not subtext, and it would be present. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't go more than X number of scenes without bringing it back up. Look, that's valid, and you can do some great stuff that way. What I appreciate is this is so classic in that it sets up that thing, and then it just lets the metaphor happen. It trusts that if you're yeah. watching a movie about a young girl who is in a maze where she's lost, trying to find her family again that maybe that's enough and they don't need to explicitly have characters talk about it every three scenes. Look, which you can get some great talks out of that again. Sure. But I, I just, I don't know that this exact thing would get made. I think they would pump up a lot of those other elements throughout, which is a fine way yeah. to go again. But I just really, really enjoyed this kind of classic structure. Well, it's so interesting. You know, it, Jim Henson, you know, while he he made work that was accessible to children. I don't even want to say it's for children because I think these are movies for all ages. I think The Muppet Show is a show for all. Like Sesame Street is is for children. It's intended as a teaching device for, for kids. But The Muppet Show, to me, is the very definition of family entertainment that the whole family can sit and watch. And I think these movies are as well. But it, it, it says something about him um, as an artist 
that making making material that is intended for children to see as part of whether it's just them, but how much he trusts kids, how much he trusts kids to get it. You don't have to explicitly say it. Kids will understand because kids are not as dumb as you think they are. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with her, uh, the idea of friendship and what that means in Labyrinth yeah. as she is, you know, much like Dorothy collecting her her uh, band of misfits from this land who will help her along the way. Um, they explicitly say the word friendship and whatnot, but there really yeah. isn't. It is just kind of laid out there in the context of the story, again, without necessarily um, stopping and, and having the mailman come to say, message! Uh, message! Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I want to mention, I love that the, the very opening of this movie, you have this CGI owl, yeah. this early CGI owl, and it looks like it's straight out of the Amazing Stories intro. I thought the same and thing! I, yes! I love it. I love it. Then, you know, we, we, we go, we open with Sarah reciting lines from a book. This, she's got this little red book, The Labyrinth. But as she recites it, the words are hollow and unconvincing, and she doesn't really have any meaning behind them. And it's so interesting that you, there's this recurring theme in, in this whole movie of things not being what they appear. And that begins with Sarah at the start of the film, because we first see her, she's in this vaguely medieval fantasy dress. And is she in the, you know, and then we see that she's got jeans on underneath, you know, and it's, she's a modern, she's a modern teenager, modern being the 1980s. Uh, I also want to ask, where is this town that she lives in? Because it's got a great park with stone bridges and obelisks. It's got a cool little main street, and it seems highly walkable. Rob, I want to move there. Oh, uh, I, I think that was just Chat Chatsworth, and they redressed it, Chris. Uh, it's so uh, <laughs> it, it's not really like that. It's all smoke and mirrors. Um, oh, I want to mention that the baby Toby, uh, Sarah's Sarah's little brother, was played by Toby Froud. The son of designers Brian and Wendy Froud, who first met while working on on the Dark Crystal, uh, you know, in in doing the conceptual art. Uh, Wendy Froud was largely responsible for designing the Gelflings, um, and and the the their couple of years later, their their baby son is is, is one of the main, you know, is is the the, the object of the search in Labyrinth. Um, and I just thought that was great. Um, it. it as you say, this is a movie that is clearly working in a kind of a, a, a very particular story tradition uh, for a particular kind of story. And it, first of all, let me say, Sarah's room at the beginning that we see at the beginning of the movie and is the Rosetta Stone for this movie. It is the key to the whole thing. Uh, first of all, we see books in her room that are, are very clear influences. There's where the wild things are. There's Alice in Wonderland. There's The Wizard of Oz. There's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, as well as the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm. Other elements that can be seen in the room, the music box with the turning figure that resembles Sarah at the ball. There's a wooden labyrinth game. There's stuffed animals that look like Ludo and Sir Didymus. Uh, there's a Jareth figurine. There's the poster of M.C. Escher's Relativity, which inspires the final maze in Jareth's castle. And I think an album cover with the tunnel cleaning machine from uh, later in the labyrinth, the one that, that chases them down, I think can be that, that machine can be seen on an album cover in her room. But most importantly, we get a scrapbook 
with various newspaper clippings and, and, and photos that give us the backstory of Sarah's mother. And you would never be able to catch this on a first viewing. I don't even know if you'd be able to pause on a VHS because of the resolution. This feels like a movie made for Blu-ray. Like, except in 1986, kind of anticipating people will be able to pause it and really look. But what we can discern is that Sarah's mom, whose name is Linda Williams, was a stage actress of some renown and apparently had an affair with one of her co-stars and left her husband for him. The co-star, as it happens, is played by David Bowie, and we can see him very clearly in the photos. Um, and it just it just fascinates me that it's all in the room. Yeah, and it's also, you don't have to catch that for the movie to work. It is an added layer. I'm sure I didn't oh. when I saw it in the oh, movie as a, theaters, as but a kid, it I, I totally missed that for no. sure. But what I also love is how this is, again, uh, trusting the metaphor. I mean, it, really, visually, this is the equivalent of hanging a sign onto the bedroom wall. Hey, audience, everything you are about to see is her internal struggle to deal with her family right. stuff. Um. You know, I would say that uh, more so than other movies that have this kind of metaphor, I would come down on the side of this never happened. Right? Yeah, it's, the, it, it is in her It head. is all in her head. It's all a representation of her inner struggle. Uh, and mu much in the way that I think uh, you could, at least in the original Wizard of Oz movie, make that same case as well. Right? That she yeah. never went to Oz. She got knocked out and uh, trying to run away from home and then had that happen uh, internally yes. to allow her to see her home in a new light. Uh, Alice in Wonderland 2 yeah. is very, you know, kind of leaves it very much up in the air. Was it all a dream or was it, you know, was it real? That is a very strong convention of this type of storytelling. Yeah, and it's... it's um. The one of the ways, that, obviously, that is one way that it's very different from Star Wars. Another way is we've been talking around this, but that this is much more of a quest story. So Dark Crystal yeah. is closer to Star Wars in that there's a big bad, and you know you need to do X, Y, and Z to defeat them. This one, there yeah. is a big bad. You know, you've got the Goblin King, you've got Jareth, who's stolen her baby brother, but. The difference here is that most of the things along the way, it's not a building to. It is like Dorothy or like Alice. It is more episodic. Um, yeah. You know, she doesn't find a glaive, but she might have been able to. <laughs> um, and so this one, though, feels a little more unified than that kind of episodic quest can, because there is a lot of contact with the Goblin King. Things feel yeah. very much more personal, both between her and the villain and just the stakes. Um, in a way, the fact because it's about saving her baby brother, I actually feel more about this than I do about sometimes some of the save the world stakes that can be presented in, in mm. this kind of quest movie. Um, yeah, yeah, I could see that. That that makes sense. There's a there's a personal uh, level to this, which is, and, and the fact that it stems from her own mistake, mm -hmm. you know, she does something that she then immediately regrets. And it's, it's interesting because that's another common theme in this movie, um, is that, 
you know, she, she, Sarah wishes for the goblins to take away her baby brother and she's instantly regretful of it. Um, Later in the movie, one of her friends that she gathers in the labyrinth is Hoggle, who is just fantastic character. Uh, Hoggle, by the way, has his own face on the back of his jacket. So he's literally two-faced. But Hoggle is coerced by the Goblin King to give Sarah a poison peach that will make her forget everything. And he does it. And he's instantly regretful for it. And he atones for that by later coming to the group's rescue and they can confront this massive robotic guard at the gate. But I got to tell you, Rob, Hoggle breaks my heart. More than maybe any character in, in either of these two movies, Hoggle breaks my heart because, listen, I don't know about you, but we've all done things we wish we could take back. We've all done things we're sorry for. We've all done things that we, we all long for a little bit of forgiveness. And Hoggle, I mean, he's got this, He's got this line where he says, damn you, Jareth. Damn me too. And it, it like, it really, it, 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 it is so fundamental is that search for forgiveness and, and that he atones for it. He doesn't just expect forgiveness. He atones for it and, and then is granted. And it's, I, I think it's, um, I think it's extraordinary. I think it's, I think it's, I think that this movie's got some extraordinary stuff. In it. And uh, I, I'll just go straight again to the metaphor. Hoggle is that part of Sarah that let her anger drive, yeah. drive her actions. So Hoggle is yeah. very much under the influence or really under the thumb of the Goblin King. And that's yeah. the excuse is that there's this powerful person who's forcing me to do stuff and threatening me if I don't. Um, so that Hoggle's journey for, uh, you know, forgiveness and atonement and Sarah's ability to forgive herself for what she has done as well yeah. as make it right. Those, those two things are both needed. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's not just blanket forgiveness. It, 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 it absolutely. Um, we have to talk about the Goblin King. We haven't really talked about the <laughs> Goblin King. We got to talk about David Bowie in this movie. Um, because, wow, um, from the very beginning, he has this rock star entrance, this amazing rock star entrance, which if anybody deserves, it's David Bowie. Uh, apparently they knew they wanted a big, big music star for this movie. They talked about people like Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson, Sting. But if there was ever a perfect, maybe the, the perfect bit of casting, it's David Bowie as Jareth. Um who is the costuming in this movie is incredible. Oh my God. That entrance with the glitter and the costume. And he's, you know, you know me, Rob, I love big collars. Yes. I love big popped collars. Oh, and he's got so many great costumes in this movie and he's just fantastic. Like he's clearly the villain, but there is a charm about him that is tangible. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that you see that is when we see him alone with the goblins. Uh, at one point oh, in the yeah. movie, there's a musical number. This is after he's stolen the baby. So the baby's it's magic surrounded dance. by the goblins. I love it. Yeah. And it, it's just it that one in particular, there's a real joyful nature to it. It's it's not it's actually not scary, which which when he enters and the goblins take take the baby at the beginning, it it really is shot oh, like yeah. a horror movie. That that's Henson saying children should be scared sometimes at the at the top of this right. thing. But 
here it, it really is kind of you're with the goblin king and the goblins and they're just rocking out like they're on mtv uh or the muppet show <laughs> and just it's it is fantastic um like the Dark Crystal, there is a a, a brilliant do- behind the scenes documentary on the Blu-ray, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. But the footage of Bowie interacting with the the Muppets, the Muppet the puppet characters, is pure joy, and it's from it's from the shooting of that scene, the the magic dance scene. Uh, there's so many great like. There's so many great characters. Like obviously, Hoggle is great. Ludo is great. Sir Didymus and Ambrosius. I love the worm, the worm with the Cockney accent and the scarf. I said hello. I said hello. Come and have a cup and meet the missus. Um, there, there's the door knockers. Those are probably knockers. my favorite uh, tertiary characters. And I, oh, they're I love, great. I love that they set up the classic. You must solve the riddle. They actually yeah. have her use the correct logic to solve said riddle, but the whole thing was a trick and there was no way to win. Uh, well, that's one of the spoiler of this alert movie is that sometimes yeah. life isn't fair. Like, yeah. and it's repeated. It's it's said is that just sometimes you know stuff isn't fair. There's a definitely a, a Python influence running through this movie as well, oh, yeah. Monty Python influence. Uh, you know, the four guards. You know, that you mentioned the wise man and his hat. He's got this the the old wise man, and he's got a bird for a hat. And the interplay between the two of them feels like it could come out of one of the weirder. Monty Python sketches. The the song um, where the heads are getting kicked around. Um, oh, the fire, that, the fire ones, the yeah, fire beings. Yes. Yeah, that feels... Oh, we have to take your head now. That feels vaguely like one of uh, Gilliam's animations for Monty Python come to life. Totally. Slash Haosu for kids. Um, it, it's just like so <laughs> wonderfully bizarre. I, you know, should you be scared of it? Should you be laughing? It's kind of in, it's both. Um, it's just fantastic. There's one of my earliest TV memories is I was at my, my aunt and uncle's house and, and my uncle had like a little den where the black and white TV and he would, you know, I'd kind of go up there and watch stuff. And there was, I, he, he loved Monty Python and he put on Monty Python and it was, it was this, this sketch. I don't even know if it's like one, it's not one of the famous ones, but it's a Scotsman playing tennis with a blamage, this giant pastry thing. And it just feels like it's something that would be out of this movie. Like it's that, it's the absurdism of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it, it is, there's so much stuff going on. Uh, again, in both of these movies, are, are sort of jam-packed with things that you don't notice on first viewing, but then you pick up uh, as you see it more. And and it's uh, it's really sad. like, the, oh, the hidden faces of Jareth throughout the labyrinth. Yeah. Like, I, I, that was something I didn't notice, you know, when I was a kid. But, like, um, you know, that was uh, this time I'm like, oh, oh, it's, they're all over. Uh, also, this is definitely the movie that taught most people of our generation the word oubliette. Yes, which we all promptly forgot. But a bunch. Um, it's interesting. And there's the masquerade scene. Eventually, she she Hoggle gives her the peach, and she forgets, and she goes into this masquerade, which is almost like you know, if the whole thing takes place in Sarah's head, this takes place within Sarah's head in the thing that's taking place in Sarah's head. But it's this it's this amazing ballroom scene where um, all the dancers are human, but they're wearing goblin masks. 
So they are they are humans playing at being goblins, and it's it's really really fascinating. Um, uh, I was going to say just to take that visual metaphor to another extreme, there there are no goblins. It is well, yeah. all. This is all, is all a representation of our worst impulses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like Wizard of Oz, Sarah's power comes from within. Her power to defeat the Goblin King is not given to her from without. She doesn't need a prince to come and rescue her. She, in in the end, rescues herself. Uh, they have the great M.C. Escher inspired maze which is just an incredible scene and a musical number uh, on top of it all and a musical number oh it's a great musical number um yeah and but then in the end um you know she she says you know she in the end the 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 lines that she is saying in the park that are hollow and without meaning she now says and they're infused uh with 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 significant meaning and uh, you know that Endro, just you have no power over me. And and there's there's certainly a metaphor here about an older man and a younger woman and him trying to exert control over her for purposes. And and her saying, "You do not have power over me." Yeah, it reminded me very much of the end of another film, which is not for children: A Nightmare on Elm Street. In that right. you're, you're refusing to give the power to that that uh, negative person. And for, for me, one of the trials that, that Sarah came out of that kind of leads her to this, which I wanted to talk about, uh, it for me, it really leads into the ending, was the old woman with the, with the illusion. Oh, yeah. When uh, they're trying to yes. keep her away from, uh, you know, from the heart of the labyrinth at the, at the very end. And they take her back to her quote unquote bedroom. And the old woman right. is like, Sarah's in under the spell of the, uh, of the, uh, she's the still fruit. under the spell of the peach. Yeah. And yeah. so the old woman keeps showing Sarah her stuff, all yeah. of the material things that meant so much to her in her room, which she was using to, you know, close herself off from her family. She was very upset that one of her old stuffies, was winding up in her baby brother's room, even though it's far more appropriate for him to have it. And, and even something families do, you pass that kind of thing down. It's, uh, but, uh, this is the old, the old, uh, film school, uh, essayist, uh, the Marxist implications (laughs) of labyrinth. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, the idea, though, is that she is yeah, come to this realization. Yeah, but it's also inherited wealth. Yeah, <laughs> she's come to It's also inherited wealth, Rob. It's all in the family. <laughs> yeah. She's not giving it to, to the kid on the street. She's giving it to her baby brother. Yeah. But she's she's realized she's been caring about the wrong things. And, right. and that, that wanting the wrong thing has been feeding into giving power to the Goblin King. Once she cares about the right thing and realizes it, uh, she can take that power back from him. Yeah. And and then you know once once she has broken the spell and 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 she has solved the labyrinth because that's the solution is that is that that she can take that power back at the end of the film we see Sarah in her room in her actual room putting away those childish things and I just to me the ending of this movie is so perfect because as her friends she she has her friends from the labyrinth appear to her and they say goodbye. But 
But should she need them for any reason at all, every now and again, they're not that far away that they can't come back. And even as we move from childhood to adulthood, we can hold on to those things that brought us joy as children. They don't have to be put away permanently. We can revisit them from time to time. And when the labyrinth creatures come back, they have party hats and streamers. And it's it's interesting because it's not just her friends. It's not just Hoggle and Ludo and Didymus, but it's all the goblins. It's all the creatures. It's the, the, the firehead guys. And they're no longer threatening. And everything is filled with joy. I, I will disagree on one bit. This is not a perfect ending, Chris. There's one glaring issue that is the most unbelievable thing in this movie. Oh, please. When the parents come back at night, they just start shouting when they come through the door. No parents would do that if they thought their baby was sleeping. They're morons. And it's so unrealistic. It ruined the whole movie for me, Chris. Three thumbs down. Oh, there it lies the difference of someone who, who has a child and has been through that and someone who has not, who didn't even think of that. But uh, yeah, you, you say. it's funny because this film was something of a commercial disappointment. And when it first came out, and by all accounts, Jim Henson took that pretty hard. But um, it's a classic. A wonderful and, movie. Uh, go go watch been... it if you haven't seen it in a while. Oh. If you've never seen it, 100% go watch it. It's it's a lot of fun. Both of these movies are... are, are uh, are incredible. The bottom line is this. The Dark Crystal is the best puppet-based fantasy movie of all time. Labyrinth is the second best. And for Jim Henson to make these two movies back-to-back in 82 and 86, what an extraordinary achievement from one of the most extraordinary, you know, minds and, 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 and craftsmen uh, and entertainers of of all time, you know. I, uh, I I can't, you know. It's Jim Henson is one of those people. I I can't say enough great things about. He he changed my life and changed a lot of lives. And these two movies are part of that. And 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 God, if you haven't seen them, check them out. If you haven't seen them in a while, revisit them because uh, they are they are both a delight and they hold up so well. <sighs> You know, I wish Jim Henson knew how loved these movies were. I hope he does. I hope somewhere in in the universe, you know, because as as they say in, uh, you know, in in the Dark Crystal, you know, when you know when Jen tells Agra that uh, that his master has died, and then Agra replies, "Well, could be anywhere then." And uh, you know, it's uh, they're they're really special, and uh, that's one of the reasons we wanted to cover them uh, here. And we hope you've enjoyed this special bonus episode of, of Get Me Another Star Wars. Um, we're going to do a few more of these for sure. Uh, but before that, in two weeks, we will be kicking off our next series. Get Me Another Halloween. We are excited for this one. We have some great stuff in store, some fascinating movies, and, uh, and 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 diving deep 
into the legacy of the of these types of films that were in particular very popular in the, the the early to mid 80s and we have some great stuff to cover again we thank you so much for listening we are your hosts chris iannacone and rob lamorges and if you enjoyed the show please consider subscribing and following us on twitter and instagram at get me another pod as i say tell your friends tell your enemies Tell people you feel neutral about about the show and, and hopefully they'll listen and join us in two weeks as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. 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 Remind me of the babe. I saw my babe.